I just want to say a word of thank you uh, to, to our teachers, those who take care of our kids downstairs. We want to continu- continuously and consistently pray for them. Um, they're teaching our kids the gospel, the same truths that we're learning up here. Uh, they're learning downstairs. And so I'm thankful for those who are serving us today. Uh, thank you to those who uh, clean every week. Thank you to those who mow every week. There's a lot of things that go in uh, to having these services. And so I just appreciate uh, everybody pitching in and playing a part in that. Thanks, John, for jumping in on the music this week. Uh, it's just been a, it's been good. It's been good so far, and um, I'm looking forward to getting to Second Corinthians. But before we before we go there, I do want to just make some comments on um, what took place Friday uh, with the Supreme Court decision uh, to overturn Roe versus Wade. Um, you know, my first my first thought in that was uh, decades of prayers. Uh, that have been prayed in that direction. This, this church has participated in those prayers. Uh, you guys have participated even in other churches in past years and had different kinds of prayers to pray for this. Um, it is a step, right? If you understand what's happened, it is a step. Um, it is no longer federally mandated in that sense, and so it's to the states. And uh, I believe that we're in a state uh, that is of the same opinion, at least in the majority, uh, that we are, uh, that abortion is wrong. And um, so we're grateful for that, but we also recognize that there's more that needs to be done and more that has to be done. Um, so, so I want to talk about abortion for a moment. I'm going to have Amos put on the screen what our articles of faith uh, say in relation to this. A few years ago, uh, several years ago, we decided to add this in just because of the state of our culture, just for clarity uh, regarding who we are as a church. We also added in things in relation to marriage and gender. And uh, so one point that we make in our articles of faith on abortion, and I'm just going to read this. We're going to look at some scripture and have some comments. We believe that human life begins at conception and that the unborn child is a living human being. We just sang that, that verse uh, that begins this way, you give life. You give life, speaking to our God. Abortion constitutes the unjustified, unexcused taking of unborn life. Therefore, abortion is murder. Uh, we reject any teaching that abortions of pregnancies due to rape, incest, birth defects, gender selection, birth, or population control are acceptable. The question comes down to this, is it human life? And that's where we would have fundamental disagreements with many in our culture. Obviously because they don't have that same particular viewpoint that we have that this is human life. This is the stance we take as a church. And uh, so, so we understand where the differences lie. We understand there's fundamental uh, truths at work as we're thinking through this as a church. Uh, look with me, if you would, at Psalm 139. I want to look at one of these verses uh, that we highlight here in our Articles of Faith because I just want to show you from Scripture why we come to the conclusion that we come to as far as the recognition that this is life in the womb. Psalm 139, I'm just going to read verse 13 down through verse 16. Such a great psalm. We're jumping into the middle of it. But here's what the psalmist writes. David says this, For you, you formed my inward parts, and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. It's a reference to the womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. It's verses like this and a few others that we look at to recognize that uh, God is the one who knits life together in the womb. God is the creator of that life. Again, this is the book that we go to that we believe is the truth that we live by and the standard by which we, we are driven in our lives. And so we recognize that there are many others in our society who do not view this book to be foundational. Uh, they want to view their own circumstances, their own beliefs, whatever they may find as, as their particular standard for living. We don't spend a lot of time as a church, and, and those of you who have been around a long time, you understand this. We don't spend a lot of time as a church critiquing what goes on in the world. Uh, we, don't, we don't take a lot of time from here to critique all of the things. We get that in, in one area because sinners are going to sin. It's, it's what sinners do. It's what they're caught in. It's their belief system. They're trapped in those things. And so uh, we don't spend a lot of time standing in judgment. Uh, but but what, what, what should we do then? Um, look, look with me. I'm going to have Amos put this up here. James uh, 1. Should be next slide. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit, that is to care for, to care for those in affliction, he specifically points out the orphans and the widows to keep oneself unstained from the world. We focus our attention, most of our attention, on what we're to do as a church. There's a great statement that's made in the scripture, let judgment begin at the house of the Lord. Our, our job is to recognize what should our response be as we engage in the world. What does it mean to be salt and what does it mean to be light in this world? What are our obligations and responsibilities? And James gives us a great insight here that we have a responsibility to care for those who are in affliction. We can find this same sentiment in plenty of other places throughout the scriptures. And so I just wanted to take a moment this morning to remind us that, that, now that now that things are changing and this, this, this federal um, law has been uh, struck down that we've prayed for and as John said, we rejoice in, what do we do in the vacuum that's left? Will the church step up and be the church? Because we say these lives are precious, but will we live out the fact that these lives are precious? And so we're called upon now to, to, to be the church that we say we've wanted to be for so long. And, and I understand that in our particular area, and especially this corner of the state of Missouri, uh, I, I think the closest abortion clinic is in St. Louis, and that's the only one in the state of Missouri. And, and so we, we don't deal with, with those things as often as maybe some other places would, but what do we do now in our own community and nationally to help? We need to up our game with the Republic Pregnancy Resource Center and other groups that are doing this work. Because the reality is most people get an abortion not because they think it's fun, but because they don't think they can handle life with a child. And they need resources and they need help. 
And, and it's our responsibility to go to those who are in affliction, whether it's an affliction that, that was caused to them or one that we could look at and say, well, you, you did it yourself. It doesn't matter. We're not called to make those judgment calls and afflictions and affliction. And so we need to do more and we need to dig our heels. And I am so thankful that this year we have upped our game with the Republic Pregnancy Resource Center. Uh, Katie has been a great advocate, uh, just go between and liaison for us. And we want to continue to do more. We want to find better ways uh, to help them and serve those in our community. Uh, I remember uh, 15 years ago when, when they were really getting the, the resource center started, it was hard for them to find clients. Now they have somewhere between 50 and 100 clients throughout the year, people that need help right here in our own community. What can we do? We want to up our game there. Groups like Ambassadors for Children. This is an organization that we've... we've, we've Helped in the past, a local organization run by the Springfield Council of Churches that helps foster kids and those who are caught in the system and finds ways to help them and supply some of the needs that exist for them. And there's dozens of these organizations around us. Opportunities for us to step in and begin to help in these situations. Adoption, foster care. The, the, these are some of the things. There will be children now who are born whose mother does not want them. Will we be willing? Will we want them? Will we find a way for them to find a home to live in, to grow up in, to love them, to feed them, to point them to Jesus? Counseling training. People want help. People need to sit down with people. And they need to have conversations and they want help as they try to navigate through some of the, the crisis and the afflictions of life. We have hope. We have help. We have a savior. We have a rescuer. But we need to be prepared to have those conversations. We need to put ourselves in a position. This will shoot me right back to the Republic Pregnancy Resource Center. They are always looking for mentors. They're always looking for ladies who, who can just come alongside some of these young moms and, and help them and navigate through life. And they're looking for men to come alongside some of these dads and to help mentor them and to help point them in the right direction. And then I think finally, what, what we've really got to do is we've just got to open our eyes. You know, our God is a God who works. Our God is a God who directs and guides and and brings people across our paths. I, I think of Jesus' statement, I, I, I'm, I need to go through Samaria. Why? One woman. There was one divine appointment that was scheduled that day. We need to open our eyes for the divine appointments and the people God's gonna bring across our path. Uh, women in crisis, children in crisis, families in crisis, and be willing to, to see it and be willing to engage in it and invest ourselves in it and and, and pray for them and do whatever we can to encourage them. We've had a few opportunities as a church to do that in the past, and I, I'm grateful for those, but there's plenty of opportunity out there. We've just got to be willing to do it, bold enough to do it. And so where I am grateful uh, for what's taken place and, and uh, this, this recognition of bad law and, and really bad morals the work is just beginning. And we as the church, 
it's time for us to move. It's time for us to rise to the occasion. And uh, so uh, if, you, if you come across those individuals and you find a family in crisis and that, that, that you think we can help, please come to, to our leadership. Come to one of our elders or deacons and, and let us know who that is and we'll do what we can to, to make those investments in their life and be the light of Christ for them and show them the love of Christ. And so uh, let's pray. Let, let's pray for this and then we're gonna dive into 2 Corinthians uh, together. Father, I am thankful for the way in which you work. And I know as, as John already pointed out in his statement a while ago, we are in a country very divided right now. And, and this is one issue out of many in which we are divided but God, I'm thankful that we can look at the, the simple reading, the simple truth of your word, and find our footing. We don't stand alone. This isn't something that we conjure up because uh, we, we want to we be cantankerous. We stand on the truth of your word that you give life. And God, we're thankful for that. We're thankful that you are the author of life. Help us to be faithful to take that message, not in a hateful way, but in a loving and beautifully gracious way to the world around us. To the people who fundamentally disagree with us, who are caught in their own, their own truths, to help them see the truth of your word. And help us, God, to be who we, who we are, who we claim to be. Now in this moment where, where there is victory, something that's been fought for for so long, God, help us now to, like Jesus did, get down on our hands and our knees and get to work washing dirty feet, doing what we can. to love those in affliction, to care for those in affliction. And God, I, I want to be so bold to pray right now for those, those, those women and children, those men, those families that you're going to bring across our paths. God, I pray for them now. I, I pray that we would be faithful. Faithful to, to love them well, to lead them well, to serve them well to do what we can to be your body here on earth, who we are, who you call us to be. Help us to be bold. Help us to be zealous. We pray for our, our own local uh, pregnancy resource center, and we pray for uh, the work that's done in Springfield through the Council of Churches and many of these other organizations. And Lord, we pray for the church across our country, churches that will rise up now and be the light be the salt that we're called to be. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you. Sermon number one, out of the way. If you would turn with me to 2 uh, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you believe it, we're going to get through all of chapter 3 today. We live in a world of uh, technological advancement. 
Right? We see this every day, different ways in our lives, out with the old, in with the new. Uh, one way that I, I kind of noticed it even on our most recent trip was years ago, I would have to pull out my giant Rand McNally uh, uh, 50 States Atlas, and I would have to kind of track through different pages, what, what highways I'm taking to get to where I'm going. And now, that's the old. The new is I just get in my van and I, I plug up my iPhone and I put in an address and Siri tells me every which way to go. And I don't even have to worry about it. It, it gives it to me just right down the, the line. We did have a little bit of an issue trying to escape Norfolk, Virginia. There were accidents everywhere and tunnels shut down and we spent like two hours just kind of circling in traffic. Another story for another time. But Siri did get us out of there probably better than I could have anyway. Um, another one, on our way home, uh, we had set our, our thermostat in our house high, and instead of having to, with the old system, call the neighbors and say, hey, do you mind to go over and, and turn our thermostat down? We can pull out our phone, and there's an app, and we can drop the air temperature, raise the air temperature, out with the old, in with the new. And I think in most situations, the newer is better. Some situations, maybe not. Uh, you know, three years ago, they came out with a new Butterfinger. I don't know if you guys remember this, and they put it on their thing. It's terrible. It's not as good as the old Butterfinger. And so there's certain things that they don't get right. Faith would disagree with me on that. Uh, but I have boycotted Butterfinger now. They, they kind of, they made me mad. Um, but in today's text, this is the point Paul's making. Paul's making the point that the new is better than the old. He argues that the newer is better than the older. The new covenant is better than the old covenant. Uh, his message is better than Moses' message. So he's going he's gonna to throw down on Moses a little bit today. And uh, so that's the point that he is making. And last week we mentioned this, that this is the direction we're going because we introduced the new covenant. We looked at Jeremiah. We looked at Ezekiel. And also we ended with that statement where Paul says that the letter kills and the Spirit gives life. The law destroys and kills, but the Spirit, the new covenant, gives life. And so let's read today's text, 2 Corinthians 3. I'm going to start in verse 7. It says this, Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to an, have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory." Paul then writes in verse 12, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. Father, we pray now your blessing on your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In the first half of this section, verses 7 through 11, Paul argues that the new covenant ministry is greater than Moses' old covenant ministry. In order for us to understand Paul's argument, we have to understand his imagery. And in order for us to understand the imagery that he's given us here in these verses, we have to go to Exodus 34, the account that Paul is referencing. So if you would turn to Exodus 34 with me, we're going to catch up a little bit of this context Children of Israel have escaped from Egypt through God's power, and uh, they have made their way to Mount Sinai, and Moses has gone up the mountain, and he has received the law, but while he is up on the mountain, what are they doing at the bottom of the mountain? They are forming a golden calf. They're already breaking the covenant that they've made with God, and they're worshiping an idol, and Moses comes down, and he's so angry and frustrated, he throws the tablets down, and breaks them. Um, I think he does it in anger, but it also is a great picture. The covenant is broken. The law has been broken. God says, I'm done, chapter 33. Moses begins to intercede for them in chapter 33. Please don't, please don't. Let's, let's, let's work this out. Let's give us another chance. Moses plead with the Lord. And uh, Moses even says so boldly in that chapter, and, and also, I'd like to see you. I'd like to see your glory. And there's some explanation that goes on there, but notice verse 34 where we pick up, the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. It's all your fault, Moses. Uh, but, but, but be ready in the morning and come up the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come with you and let no one be seen throughout all of the mountain. No flocks or herds graze opposite on the mountain. And so Moses cut the two tablets like the first and he rose early in the morning and he went up to Mount Sinai and the Lord as the Lord had commanded him and he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and he stood with him there. And proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation." Well, Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And he said, behold, I am making a covenant before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. 
Observe what I commanded you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites and the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice their gods and you're invited, you eat at his sacrifice and you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. Verse 17, you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Verse 18, you shall keep the feasts of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Beb. And in the month of Beb, uh, you came out of Egypt. All that opened the womb are mine, all your males, livestock, firstborn a cow, a sheep, the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you will not redeem, it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Verse 21, another commandment. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In the plowing time and the harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of the weeks, the first fruit wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering all years in. Three times in the year your males shall appear before the Lord God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land. And when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of your first fruits on your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Forty days, forty nights in the presence of the Lord. So when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel, they saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them. Afterwards, all the people of Israel came near and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And, and when he came out and he told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see that the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. What an incredible scene. Something so otherworldly, we, we, we struggle to figure out what did that look like? We can't quite comprehend the circumstances, but Paul is inviting us back into this story here 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. What is Paul thinking? Paul has this, this three-pronged logic that he's going to declare with us that the ministry, his ministry, is more glorious than Moses because of the unlimited exposure of God. Second, his ministry surpasses in glory because it is a ministry of righteousness and not condemnation. And then third, he's going to argue that his ministry is superior to Moses because his ministry is permanent. So let's talk through this a little bit. Moses' glory that he, he experiences here is eventually brought to an end. That's the point that Paul's making. What happened here in Exodus 34 eventually diminishes. Uh, we, we can even say that because we know that Moses eventually diminishes. Moses eventually dies. And so with Moses would have died any leftover remnant glory that he would have experienced in Exodus 34 on top of Mount Sinai. Now there's a position that, it, that is taken in what's called the Septuagint. And I'm gonna do a little bit of a side note here, a little bit of side teaching. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Greek translation of the Old Testament that Jesus would have used Paul would have used, it was used heavily during the first uh, century, and uh, they were using this in the early church as their text of the Old Testament. And so there's some variations that can exist in that, but a lot of times when you see Paul or Jesus quoting something from the Old Testament, they're quoting from the Septuagint. They're quoting from that particular Greek translation. And there's a position that's taken there in the Septuagint, as this is described, that suggests the glory Moses experienced was meant to be shared ultimately with all of Israel. It was a glory that they all were to experience and they all were to know, but because of their sin, that glory terminated with Moses and Moses alone. It wasn't a glory that Joshua would experience, the leaders of the other tribes would experience. It ended with Moses because of their sin. Additionally, Paul argues that Moses' glory was brought to an end because he veiled his face. Uh, one of the ways in which he, he diminished the glory was he put a veil over his face when he was with the people, which is referenced there at the end of chapter 34. Was there glory with Moses? Absolutely there was glory with Moses. But it was a temporary glory. And Paul's point is the glory of the Spirit far surpasses the glory of Moses because there's no end, there's no boundaries that are placed on the work that the Holy Spirit does in the hearts of, of a person. But what do we mean by glory? We keep throwing that word out. What does it mean when we say the Lord is glorious? The, the word used here and elsewhere is the word doxa. Uh, just last Sunday at the end of the service, we sang the doxology. It, it, it's a song. A doxology is a, is, a, is a phrase or it's something that's written or sung that, that declares the glory of God. There's doxologies all throughout the pages of Scripture. In Moses' context, the glory that's described here is what's been known as the Shekinah of God. Uh, the, the, the glorious physical manifestation of God, that same thing that filled the tabernacle, the, the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that would lead them. God's physical manifestation of himself in creation. But, but the root word behind that is the Hebrew word kabod. And the Hebrew word kabod means something that's weighty, something that's heavy. The idea of being massive, heavy, communicates respect, reputation, riches, splendor, honor, majesty, dignity. 
That's what we're communicating when we say, the Lord is glorious. He's weighty. He's heavy. He is worthy of all respect. His reputation far exceeds others. And so when we say that God is glorious, when we speak of the glory of the Lord, we're talking about how wonderful He is. We're talking about how great He is. But at certain points throughout human history, that glory, that greatness, that heaviness has manifested itself physically. Such as that, that pillar of fire that was leading them. Such as the experience that Moses has here on top of the mountain. The experience that Peter, James, and John have with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember? He, he unzips his earth suit is the best way I've heard it described. And, and his glory shines. And they experience on the mountain the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah. Well, the second comparison that Paul makes is this, that Moses' glory was a reminder of condemnation. When they saw Moses, it was a reminder of them of condemnation. The law Moses received was loaded with promises of judgment and death. All over the place, you cannot escape it. One author points out that even at the giving of the law, anyone who crossed those boundaries that were set around the mountain would die. And then when you go beyond that initial shot across the bow, death is promised punishment for many of the transgressions of the law. But Paul argues there's more glory in righteousness than condemnation. There's more glory in the righteousness that the Spirit brings into a person's life by way of the new covenant than the condemnation that comes by way of the law. And we know this. We know that the law condemns. Right? You've, you've read the Ten Commandments. We read some of them just there. You've read the other commandments that come from the Lord. You read it and you don't have to get very far to understand that, that you and all of humanity is condemned. We are guilty of violating and breaking those laws. But how is it then that the Spirit brings about righteousness? We understand the condemnation of the law. How does the Spirit bring about righteousness? First of all, the Spirit applies the righteousness of Jesus to our life. What an incredible miracle. What incredible glory that you and me who are not righteous are made righteous because the Spirit takes the righteousness of Jesus' life and makes us new. Titus 3.5 teaches that the Spirit washes and renews, regenerates, cleans us up, gives us new life in Jesus. But not only that, the Spirit works in us to make us righteous, putting off the fruit of the flesh and cultivating in us the fruit of the Spirit, His fruit, fruit that is glorious. And so Paul says the work, the work of the Spirit is more glorious than the condemning work of the law. One kills, one gives life. It's his point. So he's saying, this is better than that. The new is better than the older. And the third thing he gives, he compares here. The glory that Moses experienced, it faded away. But the glory that the Spirit gives only intensifies. I already made this point with the idea that, that is diminished. He, he veiled his face, Moses did. But Paul also writes this, that the glory of Moses diminished because it was surpassed. Did you see those words? Verse 10, it was surpassed. It, it was exceeded by another glory, the glory of the Spirit. Imagine if we were to bring in here this morning, we were to black out all of the, the exterior light that comes from the sun. I bring a, I bring a lamp in here, 30-watt bulb. 
put even a shade over it. It would give us light in a black room. But what happens to that light when we open the curtains and we let the sunlight in? You don't even notice that 30-watt bulb anymore. It's surpassed. It's exceeded by the light of the sun. That's the argument that Paul makes. That the, the law is a light and it's, it's dim, but it's a light and it is a light and the scripture references itself as a light. But the light of the spirit far exceeds the light of the law. And so all of this truth regarding the greater ministry of the spirit leads us to verses 12 through 18. Greater boldness. Because the message of the new covenant is superior, Paul says we ought to be bold in our proclamation. Bold. Because the ministry of the Holy Spirit is more glorious, we ought to be bold in its presentation in our lives, in the way that we reveal it to others. Verse 12, Paul writes this, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. But very bold compared to what? I think the point that he's making here is don't veil your face like Moses did. Let it, let it shine. Don't cover up the glory of the Spirit. Specifically, Paul's probably referring to his own posture with the Corinthians. What has he had to be towards the Corinthians? Very bold. He's had to be very forthright with his language and challenging them. And so he's defending the way in which he's approached them, but broader than, than their particular situation is the truth that the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel that we love, it can change lives. And because it can change lives, then be bold with it. Because the work of God that he desires to do in the hearts of people is bold. He wants to change people. Listen to what Jesus desires to do through the proclaimed gospel. This is what Paul references in Acts. He says, I delivered this message to open their eyes. The gospel is intended to open the eyes of people. Open the eyes of the blind so that they may turn from darkness to light. So that they can turn from the power of Satan to the power of God. So that people can experience the forgiveness of sin and a, play, a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What other message can do that? What other message can take someone from light to darkness? What other message can offer forgiveness? What other message turns people from the power of Satan to the power of God. So, so let's consider a few things that Paul outlines. Areas where we should have greater boldness. Areas where we should have greater zeal when it comes to the message. We speak with boldness because humanity has veiled their face to God and only Christ can unveil them. This is the point that Paul makes beginning there in verse 13. He says this, not like Moses not like Moses who would put the veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze on the outcome of what was being brought to an end. So the question is, why does Moses cover his face? And there's a lot of suggested answers that have been given. There's some that I've heard. Uh, some of the suggestions are, are kind of just freak the people out, right? They didn't like looking at this glowing man. It looked like something otherworldly, and so they were scared of it, and I can understand that. 
I, I, I thought of this in the context of, of I think it was probably about maybe nine years ago, and it was one of my first uh, years working for UPS. And uh, up to that point, I'd pretty much had a beard most of the time. But back then, UPS had a, had a rule that if you were a, a deliverer, you had to have a clean-shaven face because I guess people with beards are scary, something, something along those lines. I don't know where they got that study, but that was the reality. And so I remember one evening at our house, I, I went into the bathroom. Nobody really knew what I was doing, and I, I shaved it off. Well, I don't think Judson had ever seen me without without that. And I remember he's, he's just a couple years old. He's a toddler. And I walked out into the kitchen and he, he, he bolted. I mean, he like went immediately to get away from me and to get closer to mom. He didn't recognize me. And I'm sure as Judson was freaked out by this change, they're freaked out by this change. So maybe it's that. What else could it be? Well, it could remind them of their condemnation. He veiled it because what are, they, what are they essentially looking at? They're looking at the glory and the holiness of God. And what happened to Isaiah when he was looking at the glory and the holiness of God? He says, oh, I'm undone. He's coming unraveled. Uh, he, he's a man of unclean lips, and he lives amongst the people of unclean lips. He, he is humbled at that. But I think getting, getting closer to the point, it was a reminder of their inability to be in the presence of God. That veil over Moses' face was like the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the regular people. It was a reminder that because of their sin, uh, because of their breaking of the covenant, they forfeited the right to the glory of God in that moment. That glory that was meant to be shared with them. Now Moses is acting as a mediator between the people. But what is it that Paul intends to communicate? I think it's that. It's a barrier. He's saying it's a, it's a barrier. There's, there's a need now for a mediator. But he says now, now it's become a veil over people that, that hides the glory of God from all of humanity. And so he, he transitions it from Moses to all humans. And, and I don't like to leave stones or phrases unturned. And so what does he mean at the end of 13 where he says the outcome of what was being brought to an end? I think this is a statement that speaks to the temporary glory that Moses was experiencing. It was an outcome that was coming to an end. Again, emphasizing the temporary nature of the old covenant. All right, so now let's talk about the veil over humanity. Verse 14, their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Paul is here speaking to the depravity of man. The, the same truth that he shares in Romans 3 uh, as he quotes from the Old Testament, none is righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There's no one who seeks after God. All have turned aside and together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Man cannot see the glory of God because there is a veil that is over his heart and his mind. Man has hardened himself against God. Romans 1 says that, that, that when God has made himself known, men suppress and they push away that truth. The hardness of the heart of man, the veil that exists. Paul even writes in verse 15 that, that still to this day, when, when they read the law in the synagogues, that veil remains. 
They don't experience the glory of God. Jesus had this experience, didn't he? Remember when he went to his hometown synagogue in Nazareth? And he opened the scroll and he read from Isaiah? And he talked about the coming of the suffering servant and then he says, this day it's fulfilled in your ears. And what happened? Because they had a veil of hardness over their heart. This is Joseph's son. And they tried to run him out of town and run him off a cliff. Paul had this experience over and over in the synagogues as he tried to explain to them the fulfillment of the new covenant in Jesus. And they would with hardness run him out of town, threaten his life, beat him. Even to this day, Paul says. And we all have friends and family that Paul describes here. We all have people in our lives that are hardened. And it's vital that we understand what Paul explains in this truth. The veil, the veil is not an intellectual veil. It's a moral veil. It's not that they don't have the cognitive ability or that there's not enough facts laid out on the table. It's a volitional inability. There's a hardness. They're pushing back against God. The issue is not one of intellect, but morality. It's not a matter of the brain, but it's a matter of the heart. And, and what is it that veils the human heart? It's sin. It's pride. It's, it's a pride that will not concede an authority outside of me. I don't want somebody telling me what to do. I don't want somebody telling me that, that, that he is the author of life. I, I don't want to believe that. I don't want somebody establishing rules for me in my life. I want to do what I want to do. That's how pride directs us. Pride also will not concede a need for a savior. Pride won't give up the fact that maybe I'm a good enough person or I'm not as bad as these people. I don't need somebody to rescue me. I'm not immoral. Or it's a pride that refuses to relinquish and repent of our personal pleasures. There's just things we want. And I know if I go after this God or if I really want to see his glory, those are things that I've got to give up. We, friends, we don't reason people into the kingdom of God. We call on them to repent. And that leads to the, the point that's made next, the hope. Their hope, our hope, is found at the end of verse 14 and also 16. Notice what it says, because only through Christ is the veil taken away. It's not the law. I'm going to show you the Ten Commandments. That'll do it. No, it's not the law. It's not sufficient. Only through Christ is the veil taken away. But when one turns to the Lord, verse 16, the veil is removed. Only the living Spirit of Jesus can remove the veil. And this is the promise at the heart of the new covenant, isn't it? We read it last week. That that heart of flesh will replace the heart of stone. That the law of God will no longer be written externally on, on tablets of stone, but it will be written internally onto our hearts. Thus, as it says in Jeremiah, we will know the Lord. We will know Him. We will be face to face with Him like Moses was on the top of the mountain. 
we will know him. No veils, no rocks to even have to hide between so that we don't get too much of the glory and melt like on Raiders of the Lost Ark or something like that. No condemnation of the law that separates us. No barriers. We will know the Lord. We can know him so that we might with boldness and zeal make him known to others. Guthrie sums this up well. He says, the new covenant means that people have an open-faced relationship with the Lord in which that which separated them from the presence of God and the glory has been removed. I think we often think, well, if I could have, if I could have experienced what Moses experienced, then my faith would be really strong. Or if I could have experienced some of the things that even the disciples experienced in the, the presence of Jesus, then it would be strong. Christians, our, our experience is far greater and surpasses those glories. Because the Spirit of God, the living God, is present with us. Face to face, no barriers. Every single day. This is the point that Paul makes. This is glorious. There's a lot more that we can say on this. You might notice that, that this conversation continues into chapter four, so we're gonna come back and cover some of these things next week. But I wanna get to the next point. We speak with boldness because it is only by the Spirit that there's freedom to be who we were created to be. We can be bold in our, in our speech. We can be bold with the message that changes lives because it is only through this spirit that we're free to be who we were created to be. Sin disrupts creation. Sin disrupts the purpose of man. But, but through the work of the Holy Spirit, there is liberation to, to do the right thing. Through the work of the Spirit, there's liberation to, to be the person that we're called to be, to love people the way that we're called to love them. To forgive the unforgivable. Paul encourages the Galatians in their newfound freedom. He says, don't, don't use the freedom that you have in the Spirit now for your fleshly purposes. But rather use it to, to lovingly serve others. That's the freedom that the Spirit brings. Because of the Spirit's presence in our lives, we can say no to sin. We can say yes to righteousness. We can say no to the fruit of the flesh and we can say yes to the fruit of the Spirit. This is our freedom that we have now from the Holy Spirit. So in that, there's hope for those struggling in addiction, isn't there? There's hope to learn what it is to say no to sin. And yes to what's right. There's hope for the, the, the husband or the wife who, who struggles to be kind to their spouse or, or the parent who struggles to have patience with their kids. There's hope in all of these areas. There's hope for any and all who sin because of the work of the Spirit. Like we sang this morning, my chains are gone. I've been set free. I like how Charles Wesley so beautifully wrote it in his 18th century hymn, And Can It Be. Here's what he writes. He says, I think this is in your bulletin as well. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, 
fast bound in sin and nature's nine. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke and the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. And I rose, went forth to follow thee. There is freedom in the spirit. There's freedom in the new covenant. We must boldly speak this message because only boldness will free men and women from their prisons. Only through the spirit of Christ can man be freed to be fully alive. One more point here. We speak with boldness because only by the Spirit are we transformed into the image of Jesus. It's verse 18. Last verse in chapter. Kent Hughes writes this, that Moses' temporary exposure uh, to the glory of the Lord worked a mighty transformation in him. And it did. But it was temporary. But the new covenant ministry of Paul is even more transformative because our exposure is constant and continuous. There is no end to this. It's not as if the Spirit comes and then the Spirit leaves and then the Spirit shows up again and leaves. No, the Spirit is permanent. There is no veil. The old covenant started on the outside with the goal of, of somehow working on the inside. And what happened? It failed. What's the promise of the new covenant? I'm going to make you new on the inside so that it might work itself through to the outside. Righteousness cannot be imposed. Righteousness has to be exposed from a new heart and a new life. Verse 18, Paul delivers a knockout promise. He says, we all with unveiled face. That's awesome. No veils. We behold the glory of the Lord. And we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We're undergoing the process of, of metamorphosis. That's the, the Greek word that Paul uses here. That, that metamorphosis that we learned about in science where a caterpillar fundamentally changes into a butterfly. Or sometimes worth a moth. The plight. I don't like moths. But the point is, the Spirit is at work in the lives of Jesus' followers, fundamentally changing who they are. It's what we call progressive sanctification. Our change isn't overnight. It would be maybe nice sometimes if we could just wake up and be the loving and joyful and, and patient kind of person that we're supposed to be. But no, it is a lifetime worth of change. Some people would ask, why are we even still here? This is it. We're here because we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another degree of glory. As we behold the Lord, we become like the Lord we behold. You are what you eat. Garbage in, garbage out. What you behold, you become like. And Paul says, as you behold the Lord, you become like the Lord you behold. The end game is that we will all be conformed into the image of Jesus. That's the work that he's doing in us. That's the work of progressive sanctification. He's taking out the impatience and replacing it with patience. He's taking out the worry and the anxiousness and he's replacing it with peace and trust and joy. Jesus is the glorious Lord in flesh. And so as we move from one degree of glory to another, we live 
we look, we act more like Jesus every day. We see the fruit of His Holy Spirit being produced in greater quantity and quality in our lives. Hopefully by the bushels. As we behold the Lord, we become more like the Lord. Me and Faith are 21 years into the covenant. And 21 years in, we often open our mouths and say the same thing. 21 years in, our, our, our sighs, we sigh at the same things now. Why, why is that? Because we're together. We're in the presence of one another. We do life together. Spend a lot of time together. And as we spend time with Jesus, we become more like Jesus. So we have to ask the question, then where do we behold him? If I want to move from one degree of glory to another degree of glory and continue to grow, where do we behold him so that we become like him? Right here. We behold him in his word. We, we, we open up this book. I, I read this, this psalm this week, a section of Psalm 119, and there's this verse that's been kind of racking around in my brain. It says, the unfolding of your word gives light. And I thought of that in relation to my job, to take a really weird and complex verse and passage like 2 Corinthians chapter 3, but it's the unfolding of the word that gives us light, that exposes us to the glory of who God is. So every week we want, we want to unfold God's word for you so that you have light, so that you behold Jesus. We want to give you something greater than the world offers. We want you to see Jesus. But, but you have the responsibility too to behold him on the daily, to open up the word and to dig in and behold the Lord as you read, as you pray. I think of another way that we behold the Lord is just being the body that we're called to be. I see the evidence and the glory of Jesus in you, in you using your gifts, in you being who you're called to be, in the encouragement that you speak into my life or the prayers that you pray or the, the service that you offer to this body. It, it allows us to behold the glory of who Jesus is and that's what we wanna be for this world. We wanna be a light, a city on a hill that people look and say, there's something different about that group of people. And in beholding us, they're beholding the Lord. It's what we're called to be. This message, the new covenant, is a powerful message we hold. It's a message that takes Saul's and turns them into Paul's. The message is, is, is one that takes hopeless lepers and makes them clean. It's a message that takes those drowning in grief and floods their life with hope. It's a message that takes those who are overwhelmed with anxiety and overwhelms them with joy. It's a message that takes those struggling to find their identity and confirms them to be a loved child of God. It's a message that plucks men off the road of hell and plants their feet on streets of gold. This is the message. We must speak it with boldness. We must show others that it is effective as we let the Spirit work in our own lives. 
does your life, does your life prove, does it give evidence that this message is bold in the freedom that it gives? Or do people look at your life and see someone bound? Bound by sin. Bound by the cares and the concerns of the world. Or do they see freedom? Bold freedom. Life-changing freedom. Does your life prove that, that this message brings bold transformation? Do people see the, the change in your life? And, and again, we're not necessarily looking for the story of, yeah, I was, I was doing meth one day and then Jesus came and, and I've never looked at it again. That, that may be your story. We praise God for that. But as they look at the you that was you five years ago, do they see now that there's a transformation five years later that you're more loving and you're more full of joy and there's kindness and gentleness and self-control? Do they see the transformation? Are you boldly and zealously sharing then this good news, this, this bold message with others who stand in need of it? Paul says, that's what I'm doing. That's what I've done for you, Corinthians. That's what I'm gonna continue to do. And that's what I want you to do. That's the heart of discipleship. I'm gonna ask you to bow with me for a moment, if you would. Where in your life do you need the Spirit to give you freedom from sin? What are you going to do this week? What changes will you make so that you can behold the Lord? So you can be transformed? And then I want you to think of this as well this morning as, you, as we have opportunity to pray. I want you to pray for these people who come to mind when, when I ask this question. Who do you need to boldly and zealously share the message of Jesus with? Who's God brought into your life that needs to hear of truth? Let's take a moment. Let's consider those questions. Let's pray. Let's pray for those people. Let's pray for ourselves. Let's pray for our church. Father, we thank you for the spirit that works in us. We thank you that there's forgiveness. We all know condemnation. We're sinners. We're sinners who know new life and freedom because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Help us to live that way. Help us to live out of the truth that we say we believe and the truth that we share with others. And help us to be faithful to share it with others. Help us to be bold to live it. Help us to be bold to share it. Give us eyes to see those, Lord, who need help, who need hope. Give us courage. Give us zeal. To step into their lives and share with them hope. Not to berate them not to club them over the head with it, but to in love and grace. Share with them the hope that we found in Jesus. Help us, God, we pray. Help us to be the church you call us to be, to be the city we're called to be, the salt, the light we're called to be. Shining bright, the glory unveiled, unhindered, no barriers. In our homes, as we gather here and in the community in which we live. In Jesus' name. Amen. And hey, thank you all. I know we've, we've covered a lot of ground um, with both of those topics. Uh, I just, I want to remind you, um, the world has lots of messages for people. And the world tries to fix the problems that sin causes and creates. 
And um, I'm not here to critique that or judge that. I, I think that's a noble thing, right? To, to try to fix the problems that exist. But the problem is we who have true hope, we sit back scared. Or we sit back lazily. And we don't speak the message we're called to speak. And I see all too often the church become so critical of the, the ways in which the world tries to offer hope to people when we don't even speak the bold message we're called to speak that can help people. Let's, let's let our focus be speaking the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, to a hurting world around us and to those people.